0: Well, joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we're pleased to welcome Alexandria Johnson. Alexandria is an assistant professor of practice and research in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at Purdue University. So welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: We appreciate you taking your time. Uh, I kind of want to start with you're, you're a type of gal with a head in the clouds, but I guess it's, <laughs> you don't get your heads in them because you're studying clouds more on other planets, and so it's kind of hard to get your head in them.
2: Yeah, so we just get to look at them, really. We don't get to fly through them. Um, I do have a background in earth clouds, so I have had my head in the clouds, if you will. Um, and that kind of led into the progression of learning about clouds and other atmospheres.
1: Oh, is that how you started your passion then? Is that how you started uh, your, your passion and interest in what you do?
2: So my interest started way back in undergrad. I was actually a physics undergrad and I was very much like, I'm going to do something super theoretical and like cutting edge and, uh, you know, I don't know, topological insulators, something very, you know, showy. And it came to doing a senior research project. And I was like, well, actually, I don't want to do something theoretical. I want something I can watch. And so I found a researcher in my department who, um, Dr. Will Cantrell at, at Michigan Tech, give him a little shout out, who studied ice nucleation. Um, and I went to school in the upper peninsula of Michigan, where we get like, 300 inches of snow a year. So like you're surrounded by it. And I was like, this is great. I can learn how this forms. And this is gonna sound really lame but I watched water droplets freeze and I thought it was the coolest thing. And he was like, oh, well you can go to grad school and you can study clouds in Earth's atmosphere like fly planes through them and and look at the actual particles. And I was sold. I was like, this is what I wanna do with my life. Um, And so I actually came here for my graduate degree as well in atmospheric science and um, sort of over that time frame, I just really got interested in, you know, how we can take microphysics, this tool to, to figure out the small scale processes of like how cloud particles form and we can take it and apply it to different systems because it's really universal. It's physics. Like that's, that's what I love about it. And so I started thinking more about, you know, what would clouds on um, other planets look like? So like Mars is a really easy one because it also has water ice clouds, but it also has CO2 ice clouds. So you get, Lots of crazy things happening. Um, and then I got this opportunity to work with uh, Dan Sitso, who's our department head, and Sarah Seeger at MIT for my postdoc, because they were looking for someone who could bridge that gap between Earth science and uh, other planetary bodies and really focus on clouds. So I kind of fell into this opportunity, and I'm very grateful for it.
1: Oh, awesome. Well- Oh, we I guess we start. Let's start with a quick a short overview of the foundations of did you talk about like the physics of cloud formation and stuff. And so can we can we get, start with that? And have you kind of explain <laughs> how clouds form? Because I, I know I got a bunch of questions about the clouds made from things other than uh, water uh, that I'm like, Oh, how's that going to happen? <laughs> so I guess we need to maybe back up a hair and make sure everyone's on the same um same level understanding how clouds here form.
2: Definitely. Um, so we think about the air around us is mostly nitrogen and then oxygen and there's some water vapor in it when we think about Earth. And we have a lot of different processes by which that air can be lifted into the atmosphere and when it lifts it expands because it's experiencing a lower pressure. So its temperature reduces it also experiences a lower temperature just by going up in the atmosphere. So you know if you if you Go up on a, a mountain um, we don't have them around here but if you go up on a mountain on a sunny day you'll notice that the temperature gets colder as you go up and so the air that we're lifting from the surface experiences that too and you get to the point where that that water vapor no longer wants to be a vapor it wants to be in the liquid phase and so it'll it'll condense out onto basically dust particles in the atmosphere and you get the formation of clouds you can then go on and keep lifting it uh, higher and higher and you'll get to the point where either that water doesn't want to be liquid anymore, it wants to be a solid, so ice, or the vapor wants to move into the ice phase. And you can start thinking about multiple different phases of a substance um, and what's happening in the cloud with regards to those particles.
1: Now, you said Mars and Mm -hmm. that kind of caught me off just a little bit, I gotta admit. Um, It it doesn't happen too often because I know there's no liquid water on Mars. and I didn't think there was even like ice exposed at the surface because it would sublimate out. But
2: so there is some um, at ahead. the at the caps, the polar caps. Um, in the winter, we get a lot of CO two being pulled out. There's also um, uh, excuse me, liquid, ice, CO two ice, and then uh, water ice being pulled out as well from the atmosphere. But the atmosphere is mostly co2 and there's not much water around so yeah you kind of have to dig under the surface to get to um, water ice and then it'll sublimate right away into the gas phase
1: okay and so how does the cloud thing work there then
2: yeah so mars is is pretty interesting in that even though its atmosphere is dominated by co2 which we think of as a greenhouse gas it's really really thin so um, our surface pressure is about a uh, thousand millibars on um, Mars at six millibars, so it's much, much less. And uh, what we end up seeing is that there's about a hundred degree uh, Celsius or hundred Kelvin swing in the day to night temperature. And during that temperature swing, uh, you can reduce the temperature of the atmosphere enough that you're gonna get water ice condensating out or it actually deposits, it goes from the gas to the solid phase. And then that's sort of at one layer, a little bit lower in the atmosphere. And above that, you'll get CO2 ice clouds forming
1: so does co2 does that form the same way a water cloud would
2: yeah so the basic physics is the same is that you have this gas around in the atmosphere and you're cooling it to the point that that gas is no longer you know stable in that phase so it wants to move to something new and and in the, the temperatures and pressures that we look at for the martian atmosphere it wants to go from that gas to a solid Okay.
1: Well, that, okay. That makes sense. That, okay. That's a little better for me. Um, <laughs> but okay. Yeah. I, I see how we can see those on Mars. Cause I mean, there's like, we have satellites going around Mars collecting data and stuff. We but have so your much research data is it. A little further out than that.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, so we, we do think about Mars still, but we've really turned our eye towards exoplanets because there's so many questions about what's going on on these planets. We have, um, transits and occultations. So a transit, it was when the planet passes between the star and us, and we can observe a dip in that star's brightness. And when that happens, sometimes you can get a little bit of starlight that's filtered through the atmosphere. And we know from looking at atmospheres around us in our solar system that that light can be absorbed by molecules and you can basically get imprints of the molecular composition of that atmosphere on that starlight. So we can start to think about what are these atmospheres made of. We can then do, um, you know, basic what we call radiative balance calculations. So how much solar or stellar radiation is going into the planet versus how much radiation is coming out. So how warm is it? Um, you know, what sort of compositions are holding on to heat? What can that do for um, how the temperature and pressure change with height? And then we can think about what sort of clouds might form in these atmospheres. Wow. <laughs>
0: Okay, so I so for me, what how is an exoplanet different from Earth? Like, like is there is there a difference?
2: So exoplanets, that term um, in, in the Latin sense, exo means outside. So it's a planet outside of our solar system. So a planet around another star. Um, when we go and we look at the demographics for exoplanets that we've found, so what properties do they have, what might they represent in, you know, if thinking in terms of our solar system, which is kind of our blueprints, they actually, we tend to find planets that are called either super-Earths, so they're bigger terrestrial planets, bigger than Earth, or sub-Neptunes, and so they're gaseous planets that are a little bit smaller than Neptune, but we don't have this type of planet in our solar system. We also find things like hot Jupiters, which are Jupiter sized planets or larger, much, much, much closer to their star. Um, they could have orbital periods. So, like one year on that planet could be a couple hours or a couple days um, in, in Earth time.
1: Oh, wow, that's moving.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But how, so, how do you know? it's it is it still trips me um it, it's I, i'm trying to grasp because it's i mean it, it's out there more than one way and me and uh, but i'm thinking okay it's you're looking at this planet and so what kind of wavelengths are you are you using to look at to determine the composition of the clouds on a planet that's uh, pretty darn far
2: yeah um so i should i should preface this i'm not an astronomer so i don't do the observations i just use the data from okay. the wonderful astronomers who do them okay. um so the there's a, a wide range of wavelengths that we can look at these planets with um, the warmer planets are going to emit in the infrared or ir so you, when you think of you know anything around you is emitting radiation just because we we, we all are absorbing some radiation so we're re-emitting it and a body that uh, is at you know, normal sort of temperatures. So like you or me, or we could go and look at the moon or any other planet in our solar system, we can basically get an idea of the temperature it's at from its IR. And so in ways we can you sort of tune the wavelength that we're looking at it in, and we can sort of probe different depths in the atmosphere or different um, substances in the atmosphere. And so IR is a really useful technique, um, Spitzer, Space telescope used to be around. It's no longer um, operational, but that was one instrument that was used a lot. Um, Another instrument that has uh, sort of a wider range of wavelengths is Hubble is now used to study exoplanets. Um, The Wide Field Camera 3 is one that has been used to characterize um, those transits that I was talking about to look for signals for atmospheres. And, and you just kind of basically use as much of the wavelength spectrum as you can from the instrumentation and, and pull out um, you know, all the information you can. So another way we can look at it is in the visible spectrum. And so instead of you know, thinking about something that might be, I don't know, 200 Kelvin radiating back at you in IR, you can think of what we see and we can get light that's scattered off of planetary atmospheres back to us that can give us an idea of what might be in that atmosphere Like clouds or hazes.
1: So, you understand how the physics of cloud formation. And is it at that point, do we make the assumption? And if so, how safe of an assumption is it that the physics of cloud formation on Earth would be consistent with the physics of cloud formation on a body? orbiting a star with a different past, <laughs> um, uh 5 million light years away.
2: So that, that physics is universal. And that's what's really so great about it. Um, if you talk to any of my students, I think in every class I've taught and, and all the students that I advise, I have this thing that we have this little template and we go and we look at earth and we say okay this is our physics that we can study really really well like i said we can we can do this in the laboratory we can take planes out and look at things in real time we have really in-depth models we've been observing earth for uh, an extremely long time so we we have lots of data and we can take that physics template and turn around to another planet and say okay how does this template fit what we see on Earth. And then the basic physics is the same, but you have to sub in, you know, different planetary conditions. So what is the composition of the atmosphere? What is the temperature? What is the pressure? How much radiation do you have coming in? And start to to add in those details for that specific planet. Um, What's nice about this, and, and this is how I view it from my background, is that, you know, we take this template for Earth, we apply it somewhere else, we learn something about that planet, but we can also turn around and we can learn something about Earth. So maybe we can learn about the early Earth or things that might have changed over time. Um, You know, we don't expect that our atmosphere was always like this. We know it wasn't. We had great oxidation event. We are, we humans are changing our atmosphere. And so we can kind of make it a nice little feedback cycle of learning about other planets, but learning about our own in that way.
0: I love how you're talking about using all this data that we have and then looking at data from other exoplanets and fitting it into that template that you said that we know and we can study here and then compare that to other places. How much of a process is it for you to take, that you said you use the data that's collected by astronomers, Mm -hmm. how much work goes into getting that data to a point where you can start making those comparisons?
2: So, What usually sort of happens with the data is astronomers will go out and they'll collect this information on a planet, um, whether it's that little bit of light that's been filtered through the atmosphere and you get a constituent. So say um, in hot Jupiters, we see there's sodium and potassium lines that are usually very clear. And so we know that that those substances are there. Um, People will then, other people will then take these and uh, feed them through models to try and think about what the atmospheric composition is, what is the temperature pressure profile. Um, Our work can feed back into that, but right now what we're doing is we're taking that information and sort of um, pulling out what are the, the types of clouds that might actually be in these atmospheres. And then we're saying, okay, well, let's help out these astronomers and these modelers by Trying to reproduce those particles in the lab and look at how they interact with uh, light, whether that's by scattering it or adding some more information onto that light through polarization.
1: Oh, and so, well, what, oh, my two questions all at once. Uh, And it all came to, and so, what are the most, some of the most common clouds made from from other planets?
2: Yeah, so in in the lab, we've really been focusing on that sub-Neptune planet range. So once again, that's a a gaseous planet that's smaller than Neptune, but it's bigger than Earth. Um, So we think it has a very hydrogen, helium dominated atmosphere like Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Um, The the reason why we picked that is because the upper atmospheric temperature is about 500 K, which is a temperature we can reach in the laboratory. And that's kind of important. We'll talk about the hot Jupiters in a second. Um, but for those, uh, for those planets, we think that there are potassium chloride clouds um, and potassium chloride is something that you've probably experienced, but haven't known it because it's a substitute for table salt mm. and then zinc sulfide clouds, which is a, a mineral, right? When we go to the hot Jupiters, these planets are thousands of Kelvin, extremely hot. Remember they're really close to their star and they're, they're zipping around really fast. And so there we think of more metallic materials. So encitite and forsterite, which are minerals that you could go out and find in your local region. Um, Titanium oxide is forming clouds in these systems. There's gonna be iron bearing minerals. Um, We're talking about things that we would not think of as clouds at all.
1: That, that's just crazy. <laughs> I, that, I mean, to think, uh, I mean, I'm looking at a metal cup here and I'm thinking, wait a minute, it's hot enough, that that's in gaseous form and make clouds?
2: Yes. Um, one of the, the really fun things when we're doing like uh, K through 12 outreach for this is that it's theorized that some hot Jupiters rain rubies because it's corundum. And so it just, you can think of like a, a it wouldn't be as pretty, right? It's not polished rubies falling from the sky, but you could think of a of, of ruby rain. <laughs>
1: It sounds cool until you realize the environment it is. (laughs) 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 Since we couldn't live, survive in it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That kind of reminds me, I think I've heard before, but since we're talking about Neptune's as well, I've heard before that it could rain diamonds on Neptune. Is this a possibility?
2: I know there's, uh, there's helium rain. Uh, Thought to be in in the gas giants, but I've never, I haven't heard about diamond rain. And maybe that's just because it would be more towards like the high pressure, high temperature regimes Mm -hmm. um, deeper in the planets that I don't really think about. I think about everything that we can see at the top and the
0: cloud levels. Okay. I remember reading something. I thought it was about (laughs) methane and things, but I thought, no way, but I've never heard of rain rubies. That's really cool.
1: All right. So tell me about your lab. Uh, I want to know about that then. <laughs> You're modeling things to, to help support our understanding of things millions of light years away. How in the world are you doing that?
2: Yeah, so we have a couple different techniques that we use. Um, all of them require us to come up with an aerosol or a, what we would call a cloud particle on these planets. So that zinc sulfide, that you know titanium oxide, um, we procure them from you know, just the regular suppliers for, for chemistry stuff, or we can get them because these are minerals on our, on our planet. We can actually get them from the geology part of the department, which is pretty fun. Um, but we, we either do systems where we look at an ensemble of particles, which is many particles flowing through a laser beam and looking at how they scatter light, or we can levitate a single particle, um, expose it to some very specific conditions. So, you know, up to 500 K is, the temperature for that system and uh, shine, shine a laser light on that and look at how it scatters and polarizes light. And, and both of these have their utilities. Um, the ensemble system is, is very much like earth or any planetary atmosphere. If we were in the same room I'd say you know there are hundreds and thousands of aerosols between us we can't see them but they're always around us and they, they influence our climate and the same thing is true, you know, on, on any planet. So, you know, having that that mixture of particles is, is really important for, for what we expect out of a real atmosphere. But um, the, the system where we, we levitate a single particle gives us a lot of control. We can have that single particle that has a charge on it um, and it's held by um, voltages and electric fields. And we can keep it there and we can watch how it changes with time. We can um, maybe nucleate another substance onto it so say use it as a CCN because in these at- or cloud condensation nuclei I'm sorry, trying to get away from the jargon it's hard sometimes. I was going to ask um, you. <laughs> um, but we we think in these these exoplanet atmospheres particularly the the gaseous planets, that there's not just one cloud or two like there's on Mars there's many many different layers of clouds and these layers of clouds are going to feed into each other and so a cloud that could form lower Uh, that cloud particle could then act as a condensation nuclei to help the next cloud layer form and so on and so forth. So um, we haven't gotten to that nucleation part yet, but that's really one of our our big goals. We're just kind of using the the minerals that we have now to really learn about uh, what we see from these particles that can influence radiative balance on the planets, can influence what we're seeing or the astronomers are seeing in their observations as well.
1: So how big is, I mean, I'm trying to envision what this looks like in your lab. Uh, definitely trying to envision it. <laughs> and so it's, it's I, I don't even know if you have this big chamber. And like, it's, how big, what's well, my scale?
2: Yeah, so, um, let me see if I have anything around me that can help with this. Uh, so our single particle system is about six inches uh, wide. It, it's yeah. a um, basically a cylinder that we have our experimental volume and so it's about six inches wide and I think it's a couple centimeters tall Um, and then it's it's this area is enclosed by a, a quartz ring I believe it's quartz it's coated and it's got some to keep reflection down so we can actually get our signal out Um, And then on top of that, there's two pretty bulky copper plates that we can set to different temperatures, we can set up a a temperature gradient when we get to nucleation we can set up a vapor gradient in there and it's very well controlled. Um, So that adds like two inches on the outside of it, but it's it's fairly small. Um, We do have a big box that goes over it so when we do get up to 500 K we're not melting anything we're not supposed to in the lab, Um, but the the system itself is is quite compact.
1: How do you get that hot.
2: Uh, We use recirculating baths. So you you have this system that has usually a siliconated oil in it and it will heat it up, heat that oil up and then it flows it to the two reservoirs at the top and the bottom that we have to to reach those temperatures. And um, our system is uh, also unique in that we can set the top to a different temperature than the bottom so we can get those temperature gradients across it which is uh, beneficial for when we do nucleation studies.
1: And so you have some kind of sensors inside that small of a thing that you're measuring wavelengths and...
2: So the, the laser light is external to that. Um, so we, we use a single, um, unlike sort of the observations that go on, we use a single wavelength laser and that's so we can have really precise control over what we're detecting. But these, these lasers are basically, they're, they're cute, they're tiny, they're like this big. And you can plug and play them so you can change out your wavelength pretty quick and you can continue your experiment. Um, outside of that sort of, I should have, I should have brought a picture up for this, but we, we have our particle that's levitated in the system. We have our laser beam coming in. And then on that same uh, sort of level where the laser beam is, we take what's called a photomultiplier, and we sort of spin it around our system and it collects the photons that are scattered by our sample. And so that's how we actually get our, our physical data on what these particles are doing to the laser beam.
1: Uh-huh. It's collecting individual photons?
2: We can, well, with with this photomultiplier, we can count the photons or we can just get out uh, a voltage or a current, which is equivalent to that. So we could if we wanted to count the photons, but our our laser beam is really strong, so we would would have very high numbers.
1: Okay. Well, that's just amazing. Totally trips me up (laughs) that you can do that. I mean, I'm just saying it's you're modeling something to see, you know, how we measure things that's, light years and then some away, I mean, it's I mean, it's how far away are we looking at some of these exoplanets?
2: So um, the one that we use as our sort of base model is called GJ 1214 b because they all have a, a catalog number, mm-hmm. um, I should say so that GJ 1214 is the star number and then b means that it's the first planet that was detected around this star, I think it only has one still but if you ever see like b c d that means there'd be three planets around that star. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, that planet is about 42 light years away. So it's you know, not, not a, a, a short distance, it's very far away. Um, one of the things that I, I think is so cool about the exoplanet information is that the information that we have on these planet and star systems, it's only a couple pixels on a telescope that like you're actually getting the data on Um, And you can't resolve the planet from the star. So it's really this, uh, the classical way to describe it is that it's a firefly next to a spotlight problem. And so you have to pull out the information that you know about the star to learn about the planet um, and you get the, you know, part per million signal but we can still pull out all this atmospheric constituent. We can still think about the temperature like day, night temperature differences on these planets and get a ton of information from such a what you would think would be a, a small insignificant amount of, of data on, on those couple pixels.
0: I, I, I'm so glad you said that because I'm thinking as you're talking about this, this cannot be very much, I mean, that's <laughs> so small because I just think how far it's away, the data you're getting would have to be tiny. So that's an excellent explanation then that, you know, it's a couple of pixels and that you're, like you said, using what, you know, to, to take that out so that you have that data. Wow. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's just inconceivable you can get that much data from that small of a thing and you can you know using basic assumptions and be able to determine in I mean every all kinds of things about it
2: yeah I I just I love it there's sometimes I'm reading the papers and I have to take a step away because it my mind is just like wow how are we doing this i have to go aside and like look at the real clouds you know um on a sunny day and then i have to come back to the paper um it's 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 absolutely amazing um and it's we are just learning so much about planetary systems and you know what is the diversity of plants that we can have and what does that mean for an atmosphere or if there's a surface there what does that mean for the surface
1: and so what all with this type of research what all are we hoping to gain from it? And you've already kind of mentioned a couple things. I just want to to (laughs) hit them on the head harder or whatever, but uh, it's, you've already mentioned a couple. So what what all are we trying to gain through your research?
2: So what we want to really do is we want to make the gap between um, what we observe and, and what we model more realistic to what is actually happening. So we, you know, we observe an exoplanet Um, In some cases, we don't get that signal transferred through the atmosphere because there are clouds there and they're optically thick. And so you kind of left with this question of, well, we know that this planet isn't uh, massive and dense enough to just be a bare rock hurtling through space. It has to have an atmosphere. It's rather puffy or you can think of it as being light in terms of light density. And so if we want to know what's happening there, we need to know something about the clouds, uh, the particulates that are present. And so we can use it. other information. So I mentioned there was the transit when the planet passes in front of the star. There's the occultation when it goes behind the star. And then if you can look at the entire orbit of that planet, it's called the planetary phase function. And through that phase function, you can look at light scattered off of the planet and back to us, the observers, by angle, which is basically what we can do in the in the lab, just uh, a little more you know simplistic having our single particle and taking a photomultiplier around it but it's the same thing and so we can kind of take that data that an astronomer has found whether it's information on the atmosphere or information on that scattering on that particle or excuse me that planetary phase function and we can do it in the lab and then we can give that information back to the modelers and say well here's a better representation of what those clouds would actually look like in the atmosphere and that can help us under, better understand temperature pressure profiles, which helps us better understand the chemistry, um, the, the cloud formation. Um, you know What might be below that we can't see? Is there a surface or what sort of compositional changes are there? Um, really, it's funny because astronomers see clouds as a nuisance because they can block their view of these planets, whereas I see it as, as a benefit. Like We can use this to our advantage to learn what we can't otherwise see.
1: So do you ever come across something and then you're, you're working on the data and looking at it and you're like, no, it, just no, this does not make sense. <laughs> it, it, what do you do if you hit that point?
2: Um, well, there's, there's some interesting things in that um, there have been some, some modeling work that has been done. Um, where we basically just do equilibrium chemistry, and it's a very simple guess. So, you have a temperature pressure profile, and you, you lift that air along that or that atmosphere along that profile until you get to the point where the gas wants to be in a new phase and it, it either condenses or um, deposits out. So, going from the gas to the liquid or the gas to the solid phase. And we know from our own experience on Earth and other planets that it doesn't happen. Right away when you reach saturation, so you know you can reach 100% relative humidity, but you might not get a cloud. And so um, that's something we think about a lot: is what is that then going to do to where these particles form or what they're made out of? Um, you know, what is that going to do to the, the temperature-pressure profile in the atmosphere overall? Um, it's it's not necessarily like it's completely wrong, but we have to start thinking about the intricacies of this because we're getting more data and that's kind of the, the end goal is to really be able to explain these planets as well as we can our solar system neighbors.
1: Very nice. Well, thank you. This was really cool. <laughs> this was really cool. It's, it's, it just blows my mind to think yeah. that, that you can take this, that a couple pixels, you know, and, and you can actually determine information it's it just absolutely blows my mind that you can start having an understanding of planets that are that far away simply through a couple of pixels. And I can only imagine what how much you'll learn when when technology uh, is. I mean, it's always growing. And it's always better and yeah. better. I know it's. like, I mean, your cell phone camera is just blows <laughs> away what it was. You I mean ten years ago. Yeah. So I can only imagine that the the level of the telescopes and stuff that you use that has those increase in technology it uh, i'm guessing there'll be a, a whole line of people to uh, get that data for the next whatever next telescope we push Oh
2: yeah the the next one um i mean the one that the exploring community's basically been waiting on for a while is the james webb space telescope or jwst it's it's launch has been sort of pushed back with time because of uh, things that were detected here that needed to be fixed before it got launched. Um, Its date for launch is actually October of this year. So very hopeful (laughs) that it actually goes up there. Um, We we really think it's going to be a a whole new window into exoplanet properties and, and their atmospheres. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for it. it, it's going to be looking at a whole bunch of different wavelengths and um, I'm really hoping that, you know, it gives us more information so we have more clouds that we can study.
1: Awesome, awesome. awesome. Well, thank you for your time. We no really, really thank appreciate you. it.